chapter 23, verse 31. Jehoaz was 23 years old when he became king. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah from Lebanon. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh as his ancestors had done. And Pharaoh Necho imprisoned him in Riblah, in the land of Hamath, and prevented him from ruling in Jerusalem. He imposed on the land a special tax of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Pharaoh Necho made Josiah's son Elikam king in Josiah's palace place and changed his name to Jehoiakim. He took Jehoaz in Egypt to Egypt where he died. Jehoiakim paid Pharaoh the required amount of silver and gold, but to meet Pharaoh's demands, Jehoiakim had to tax the land. He collected an assessed amount from each man among the people of the land in order to pay Pharaoh Necho. Jehoaz, Josiah's son, becomes king. But he only reigns for three months before Necho basically captures him and imprisons him, where eventually he's going to die in that prison. So Necho then went to the other son of Josiah, Eliakim, and he made him king in place. And now he's become what's called a puppet king. He's being controlled by Egypt. And he renamed him Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is now basically paying a tax to Egypt to keep Egypt from attacking them and destroying them. But he would not have to do that if he remembered the prophecy of God, that Assyria and Egypt would never get Judah, Babylon would. So he could have saved all that taxes and that kind of stuff, knowing that God was going to spare them, at least until the Babylonians came along. So now he's oppressing his people. The significance is he's now taxing his people. And this is how it works. You see, when kings are paying these taxes, every single time we've been told this, they've gone into the temple treasuries and their palace treasuries, and they've stripped the money out of it, and they've given it to the king. We've never heard of them taxing the people. Now, I'm not saying there's never been a tax on the people before this point, but there's never been a tax to pay the pagan nations to stop them. This king now taxes them. Now, this is bad because before he was already taxing them in order to run the kingdom. Now he's got to pay a tax to Egypt, and instead of him paying the tax, he's decided to make the people pay the tax. So not only are the poor paying the taxes that they normally pay to keep the city going, but now they're also paying the tax to Assyria and Egypt because Jehoiakim just doesn't want to be attacked, which means financially speaking, they're being oppressed even more. He's extremely wealthy. They're the poor, yet they're the ones who are paying the tax to the Egyptians, and they're paying their tax to their own king to keep the nation going. So now the oppression of the people has been brought into the light in this paragraph. To 23, verse 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother was Zebedah, the daughter of Pedidai, from Ramah. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh, as his ancestors had done. During Jehoiakim's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked. Jehoiakim was his subject for three years, but then he rebelled against him. And Yahweh sent against him Babylonian, Syrian, Moabite, and Ammonite raiding bands. He sent them to destroy Judah. And he had warned that he would do this through the servants, the prophets, just as Yahweh had announced. He rejected Judah, 
because of all the sins which Manasseh had committed, because he had killed the innocent people and stained Jerusalem in their blood, and then Yahweh was unwilling to forgive them. The rest of the events of Jehoiakim's reign and all the accomplishments are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Judah. He passed away and his son Jehoiachin replaced him as king. The king of Egypt did not march out from the land against Again, for the king of Babylon conquered all the territory that the king of Egypt had formerly controlled between the brook of Egypt and the Euphrates River. Now, at this point, there's a huge shift in politics. In 625 BC, a Babylonian king by the name of Nabopolassar becomes king. Nabopolassar has reached enough strength that he's decided he doesn't want the Assyrians anymore. Now, nobody's been able to stop the Assyrians so far. There are a people group that have not been conquered, and those are the people north of the Zagos Mountains. This is where we're getting into the Persian and Median territory. But bringing armies across mountains up to this point in human history has been extremely difficult. I mean, traversing mountains with climbing gear is hard, let alone bringing soldiers and weapons and food and chariots. So this hasn't been really done before. Nabopolassar has been making alliances with people, mostly looking for money. He has made an alliance with the Medes, north of the Zargas Mountains. The Medes are mostly mercenaries, people for hire. And he has paid them an exorbitant amount of money to traverse the mountains to come into the Mesopotamian territory and ally themselves with him to defeat Assyria. This puts him on the map. In 612 BC, he conquers Nineveh. This has never been done. Remember, this empire was built in 745. It is now 612. And this is the first time the great giant of Assyria has actually been touched in any kind of a way. He conquers Nineveh. This is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. He's completely cut them from all their resources. This is like taking over Washington, D.C. and destroying the Pentagon and the White House and the Capitol building. And so he has attacked it and defeated. Now, Assyrian and the Egyptian armies are in alliance right now. Assyrian Egypt are not in Nineveh at the time. They're at Carchemish. So in 605, he moves to Carchemish and has a great battle with them, and he successfully defeats the Egyptian and the Assyrian armies. With the capital destroyed in 612, and in 605, the armies are destroyed, Assyrian empire is literally no more. In 605, he did this with the help of his son, Nebuchadnezzar II. So his father and son, in 605, he and Nebuchadnezzar II destroyed the Assyrian-Egyptian army. At that point, all of Assyria now belongs to Babylon. They have now. Now, Babylon does not deport like Assyria, because remember, Assyria's already done the deportation. So this is what the new map looks like. So Babylon basically doesn't expand that much, except that they've now made an alliance with the Medians. So they control more north and east of the Tigris-Euphrates River because of their alliance with the Medes. So this is the Babylonian territory now because of their alliance. So the empires are just getting bigger and more massively oppressive. As a result, 
Nebuchadnezzar also died in 605. The minute they achieved victory, we don't know how much of the victory he actually saw, but he died. He died of natural causes, and he was immediately taken over by his son, Nebuchadnezzar II. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar immediately moves down to Judah, the one last thing that has not been controlled yet. And so he goes down to Judah, and that's where chapter 24 kicks in. Chapter 24, he moves to Judah. He's going to attack Judah in three different waves. The first wave is going to happen in 605 B.C. The second wave is going to happen in 597 B.C. And the third wave is going to happen in 586 B.C. I will repeat those numbers as we go on. 605 is the first wave. 605, he comes down. And then we're told here that he, 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 he attacks Judah, but he does not take Jerusalem yet. Remember I told you um, the lot when we were talking about the Assyrians, armies are not usually powerful enough to just come in and conquer you and control you. Usually what they'll do is they'll turn you into a puppet nation first, drain you through taxes, and then they're able to come in and conquer and control. So in the first wave he comes in, and one of the first thing he does is he's not deporting everybody. He basically takes over the throne and he puts the kings that he wants in place so that he can control them and manipulate them. The other thing he does, he deports the highly educated noblemen of Jerusalem. And he, de- he deports Azariah, Mishael, Hananiah, and Daniel. He deports these four guys. These are the ones we know about. There's many people deported. And that's where the book of Daniel comes in. Because Nebuchadnezzar then begins a brainwashing program on them, which the first thing he does is he changes their names to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, but that's the book of Daniel. Because the idea is Nebuchadnezzar was only interested in deporting the wealthy and the nobles. He would often leave the poor behind. And what he would do is he would take the nobles that were youths, they're about 12 years old at this time, and he would begin a brainwashing program on them, very similar to Hitler's youth. And the idea was then that he would then educate them to think and be loyal to the Babylonians, but because they're Israelites, they understand the Israelite culture, they understand the Israelite language, and they can then be sent back And they will rule over Israel, and they will be able to relate and know how to navigate all the cultural taboos that a foreigner would, like, offend people all the time on. But they would always be doing it in in Babylon's interest because from a young age they've been brainwashed. Now, the whole book of Daniel, well, not the whole book, the first chapter of Daniel is about how that brainwashing did not take on those particular men because of their faith in Yahweh. And that's what that first chapter is about. So this is the people that he begins to deport off is the nobles. So he, st- he takes money, he replaces the king with one that he can control, and he deports the noble people, including these, these men in the book of Daniel. So that's his first wave. That happens in 605 B.C. He then turns them into a puppet nation with Jehoiakim as his vassal king. When Jehoiakim died... He's succeeded by his son Jehoiachin. So Jehoiachin is now a puppet king to Nebuchadnezzar. 
Nebuchadnezzar II has his talons hooked into Jerusalem very deeply, but Jerusalem has not been sacked yet. Verse 8 of chapter 24. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehashtah, the daughter of Elanathan from Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh as his ancestors had done. At that time, the generals of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched to Jerusalem and besieged the city. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to the city while his generals were besieging it. And King Jehoiachin of Judah, along with his mother and his servants and his officials, and his eunuchs surrendered to the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon, the 18th year, eighth year of his reign, took Jehoiachin prisoner. Nebuchadnezzar took from there all the riches and the treasuries of Yahweh's temple and the royal palace, and he removed all the gold items from which King Solomon of Israel had made for Yahweh's temple, just as Yahweh had warned. He deported all the residents of Jerusalem, including all the officials and all the soldiers and the people and all. This included all the craftsmen and those who worked with metal. No one was left except for the poor among the people of the land. He deported Jehoiachin from Jerusalem to Babylon, along with the king's mother and the wives and the eunuchs and the high-ranking officials of all the land. The king of Babylon deported to Babylon all the soldiers. There were 7,000 as well as 1,000 craftsmen, metal workers. This included all the best warriors. The king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in Jehoiachin's place, and renamed him Zedekiah. He comes in his second wave. And this wave, he now feels strong enough that he can do more damage. In this second wave, it is 597 B.C. In 597 B.C., he takes pretty much everyone that is left, except for the poor people. Now, remember, the poor people means like the 95% of people who live in Jerusalem and Judah, because there is no middle class. There's the very minority wealthy and the very extreme majority poor. So by poor, we're talking about the majority. So he deports only the nobles. Only people that he really leaves behind is a very skeleton crew of the royal family. The uncle of Jehoiachin, Mataniah, who he renames Zedekiah. Zedekiah is now the next king over Judah, but he is literally only a king in name. He has literally no power whatsoever. So this is where we stand. In 597 B.C., comes down, he robs the temple of everything, strips it, takes off all the wealthy noble people that are left, including Ezekiel. This is when Ezekiel gets deported off to Babylon. And it is there in Babylon about five years later that Ezekiel is going to get a vision from God, and he's going to write it down, which will lead to a series of visions that will become the book of Ezekiel. So we'll talk about that. So Ezekiel is actually going to get a vision from God why he's in Babylonian territory about what God's about ready to do to Judah down in Judea territory. So Jehoiachin is then captured and imprisoned in the dungeons of Nebuchadnezzar. And the uncle Zedekiah is king. So the uncle Zedekiah is king in Israel, or Judah, and Jehoiachin is a prisoner in Babylon. And the remaining royal family has been deported along with Ezekiel, who is a priest. He's a part of the royal family and he's a Levite. He's a priest. 